If you'll take your Bibles, we'll turn over to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5. We welcome all those who are watching through live stream and, and know that we each week we have people that join us in different times and different ways, and so we're grateful for those that are with us tonight. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to continue in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are up to verses 21 through 26 this evening is what we'll be looking at. Chapter 5, we'll read verses 21 through the end of 26. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you to be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is God's word. Well, we have gone through the Beatitudes, which were... In verses 2 through 12. We've already covered that. It's been weeks ago. We spent weeks there. And I just want to say, just want to remind you, the Beatitudes are an excellent, I'm reluctant to use the word tool, but it's an an excellent uh, means, excellent means of discipling people. I mean, let's say that you know someone who maybe as a new Christian, they're they're young to the faith, Uh, or maybe you're trying to help explain the gospel to someone. Um, I recommend taking a look at the Beatitudes because what do they begin with? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And remember, if you're not poor in spirit, you're not in the kingdom of God. Can't get in the kingdom of God unless you are first poor in spirit. And so... Being aware that many people, again, we we say this over and over, but it it has to be said over and over. Many people are depending upon their own goodness, having spiritual money in the bank. They've they've done good things. They've you know they've they've given to this. They've done this, and they're not as bad as this person. And all of that is to say, I may not be the worst person in the world. I may not. I may not be perfect, but I have some spiritual capital in the bank, which means you're not poor in spirit. You're not getting in. And so that's why the Sermon on the Mount is a great place to start, to help people see, their, help, them, help them understand, though they do not understand, help them understand their spiritual poverty. And, and then we're able to point them to a resource, uh, a provider you know, in Christ. Then you look at the rest of the attitudes and say, now, now, now that you 
you know, you, you, you've come to Christ and you're poor in the Spirit, here's what should proceed from that life. You know, blessed are those who mourn over their sin. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. You can walk them right through, and this will help disciple them, help them to, help them to see this, this, is, this is how, this is the kind of life that, that God blesses. This is the kind of life that God puts his stamp approval upon. So we went through the Beatitudes, and I, again, I recommend them for your help and for the help of others that you might want to disciple. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching his followers how to live counter-culturally in the world. Let's not forget that. And we've, we found out the last time that we were together, two weeks ago, Jesus is teaching how to live a righteous life that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that was in verse 20. Again, cannot stress how important that is. Now, the original, the original audience would have heard this, and, and, and it would have just taken their breath away because they lived among the Pharisees and the scribes. And they, Jesus' original audience who heard this, they would have, they would have seen the, you know, the, 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 the high level of re- religiosity and righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. They would have seen it, and they would have heard this and thought, how in the world are we going to exceed that? How in the world are we going to get into the kingdom of heaven? If our righteousness has to exceed theirs, how in the world are we going to get in? I feel like hopeless, you know. And so it's really important, and we looked at this two weeks ago, it's really important to understand what Jesus means about exceeding righteousness. Uh, and, and, and I think I think this is in your notes. I think it is... Uh, it's, it's a righteousness, if it's not, just let me, let me just state them. It's a righteousness that exceeds in kind rather than in degree. Remember two weeks ago we gave the example, you know, of, of uh, a woman who, let's say, she fed a thousand homeless people and, and she spent all of her money to do this and she used all of her time and her resources to do this and 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 then someone tells you now you've got to exceed that, and so you might think, okay, I guess the only way to exceed that is to cook a thousand and one meals. <laughs> she did a thousand. I'll do a, I'll do a thousand and one, and I'll exceed it. Uh, you know that that's certainly one way, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, Jesus is talking about a righteousness that, that exceeds in kind rather than in degree or rather than in quantity. It's a righteousness of the heart. It is, it is an internal righteousness as opposed to an external. You see, when you, when, when, you, when you look at what Jesus had to say to the scribes and the Pharisees, you find that, that he's always addressing them about their external righteousness. You know, we'll see it later here, in, even in the Sermon on the Mount. They're, them praying out, outwardly. Everybody can hear them and see them. You know, they're giving. They're doing it so everybody can see them. Uh, and so their righteousness was more external. And so a righteousness that would exceed that kind of righteousness would be an internal 
righteousness. It's a righteousness with a focus not so much on more and more obedience, though that's good, but that's not the focus. The focus is on a deeper and deeper obedience, okay? So it's important to understand, Jesus has just said, and and, and this applies to us, his followers are going to have to have an exceeding righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never, it said, never, notice verse 20, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, in verse 21, Jesus begins giving what will be six examples of exceeding righteousness. Okay? It's important to know. You know we're, going to, we're going to look at them and, and you probably know them. You probably have looked at these many, many, many times. It's important to understand the context. The context of Jesus saying what he's saying, beginning in verse 21, is giving six examples. We're only going to look at one tonight. Six examples of exceeding righteousness. We live in a very hostile environment. Uh, all you have to do is, it, it, here's, what you, you know, here's, how, here's a way you can find out. You already know it, but here's a way you can be refreshed. Turn on the TV tonight, flip it on Fox News, and then flip over to CNN. And then flip back to Fox, and then back to, back to CNN. And then you'll, you'll, it, you know, you'll find out already, man, people are mad. <laughs> people are, they're fiercely disagreeing with them. I mean, and that's just it. Disagreements can really get fierce. And when there are conflicts, you know, we get into these, you know, kind of conflicts back and forth, and it's, it's very easy to believe that it's, it's, the, it's entirely the other side's fault. They're the idiots, and, and we're the same people. Isn't that the way it goes? I mean, that's, that's the way we see it, right? Now, now some, some, some in our culture, some would say that, that we, here's the two extremes. We just need to be nice. Just be nice. Just be nice. Some, some would say that's, that's one extreme. Just be really, really nice. And there's sometimes that Jesus didn't sound all that nice, right? I mean, nice is not the word. But some would say, just need to be nice. Others would say, we just need to give it right back to them. That's the other extreme. You know? see, see, it's the extreme of, let's just be nice. Let's just all be nice and not upset anybody. Let's be nice. And then there's the other extreme of, just give it back to them. Just and, and repay an evil for evil. So which is it? Isn't the better question, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? And so here's, here's what we're going to look at. You see in verse 21, and maybe in your Bible, you have, do you see the heading? What does it say up above verse 21? Do, anger, right? Okay, good. Anger. Now, first thing, as we think about this, first thing we need to, since Jesus is addressing anger, it is, is our Lord prohibiting any and all anger? You're saying, no, and that's, that's right. No. What we're looking at here is not a prohibition against any and all anger. In fact, we, we find in Scripture that, that God himself gets angry, right? Now, it's always, his anger is always an appropriate anger. It's always a righteous anger. Ours, ours can be a righteous anger sometimes, and sometimes it can be, you know, a not-so-good anger, Right? But God's anger is always appropriate. Um, and so when Jesus speaks here about anger, the thing we need to look for is he's speaking of a particular kind of anger. He's not ruling out any and all anger. He is 
lasering in on a particular kind of anger. Verse 21. um, You have heard that it was said of those of old. Now let's, let's, let's just take this little piece by piece in verse 21 because there's more going on here than just just the issue of anger and murder. First, you'll notice in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Now, we recognize that right away as a prohibition against murder as one of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not murder, book of Exodus. But notice, Jesus doesn't say in verse 21, notice he doesn't say this, the Old Testament says. Notice that right away. He, does, he could have. He could have said, you know, the Old Testament says, or the Old Testament scriptures say, or, or the scriptures say, okay? Or, like he often says in the New Testament, it is written. He doesn't say that. That's really important. Rather, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Now, why does he say it that way? And, and, and most commentators agree on this. It's, 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 you know, from everything I can read, it's 100%. They believe that Jesus is referring to the traditional teachings of the rabbis. In other words, he doesn't say it is written. Um, he could have. He could have said it is written because it is written. You know, thou shalt not murder. But he particularly says, you have heard that it was said. See, it's important because when Jesus goes on to say, but I say to you in verse 22, he is not, he is not negating the Old Testament. He's not saying, well, you know, the Old Testament says this, but just forget that. I'm saying something new. It's not that at all. He is correcting their understanding of it or correcting misunderstandings that has been told to them from the rabbis or the Pharisees, the scribes. So notice that right away. Jesus is getting ready to to correct some misunderstandings here regarding some things they've heard. Now, Question, when is murder really murder? When is murder really murder? Or let's put it this way. Is it possible, is it possible that though we, let me just say it this way, is it possible that we've murdered someone? Shake your head right, shake your head right. Yes, it, it is possible that every one of us in this room has murdered someone. And that that sounds extreme, um, but what if I said it this way? Is it possible that we have murdered someone in God's sight? Now we can really shake our head yes. Because we might, first of all, and, and the first objection might be, I have not murdered anybody. I've not, you know, I've not taken anybody's life, I've not shot anybody, not stabbed anybody. Others might say, well, maybe. But what if we say it, have we murdered anybody in God's sight? 
You see, if we, if we could contain the definition of murder, if we could limit it to just the outward act, most of us in here, I hope everybody, would be clear, right? If we could just limit it, murder, to just the, the physical act, we could all go, we could all say like the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, I have not murdered anyone, okay? But what if murder includes more? What if murder includes more than the physical act of murder? What if it includes thoughts, words, inappropriate anger, and insults? What if Jesus is going beyond the mere preserving of life itself to the preserving of human relationships? Look at verse 21 again. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother. Now, just pause there and let me ask a question. Anybody have a translation that, that says angry with his brother without a cause? Okay, so some, some of you do. Um, now you you may and, and, and you know occasionally this comes up you know you you'll you'll have someone reading a translation that will have that phrase and you have someone else who's reading a translation that doesn't have that phrase and and, and 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 unfortunately for those who have an axe to grind with the Bible they'll say see that's that's why you can't trust the Bible some Bibles have this and some Bibles have that. Um, here, here's the interesting thing. I have an English Standard Version, some of you do, and it does not have without a cause, but it does have without a cause. It doesn't have it in verse 22. It has it in the notes at the bottom. Some people have it, you know, mar margin, and they'll have it in the middle margin, and some have it at the bottom. Here, here's my point. Why, why is it in some Bibles and why is it not in others? It appears in most manuscripts, but not in the best manuscripts. Now, don't want to get into a bit because I want to stay with what we're dealing with here. I just, just want to make these, these statements. It appears in most manuscripts. But how many of you realize that, you know, there were, there were the originals and we don't have those? We don't have those. But then there's copies, and then copies, and then copies, and copies, and copies, and copies, you see. And so what, what we'd hope for, what we'd hope for is to get, well, I'd like to get my hands on the originals. Well, we, we, can't, we don't have them. Okay, well, what can I get a hold of that's the closest to the originals? Okay. And that's what we mean when we say, it appears in most manuscripts, meaning it appears in a large majority of manuscripts, but not in the best manuscripts, meaning those which are earliest, okay? Therefore, therefore, that's why it is omitted in many of the modern, more modern translations. Because many of the modern translations have had the benefit Okay, where, say, say, for example, the King James 
translators did not have the benefit of the earlier manuscripts where more modern translations do have the benefit of additional manuscripts that were not available for the King James Version translators. Uh, so you might say, well, okay, that, but that doesn't explain how it got in there in the first place. And it, it was likely, I'm just, I can always say likely, it was likely added because it helps to interpret what Jesus meant. Okay? In other words, a, a translator would, you know, a scribe would be writing and, you know, angry without a cause. And that, that helps that helps give some sense, you might say, to what Jesus meant. Because remember, we said earlier that Jesus is not ruling out all anger, okay? And so that phrase, without a cause, would help make that clear, okay? I hope, I hope that's helping, okay? Like I say, I don't want to get sidetracked with manuscripts and all that kind of stuff. Um, but... Anyway, for some, some you have it, some, some we don't. But not, the point is, not all anger is evil and forbidden. There is a place for righteous anger. So let me ask you this question. Can, can you think of any examples where righteous anger would be appropriate? Can you think of any? Okay, good, good. We, we, yeah, we, we should be angry against the sin of abortion. That doesn't necessarily we, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are we are angry at vulnerable, uh, vulnerable ladies. You know, we're not we're not we're not directing our anger at vulnerable people who sometimes are caught up in circumstances that are, are very difficult for them. But we are angry at we are angry at the promoters of you know the the the, the, the those those who. Who, uh, who, who, who seem to defend a defenseless uh, situation such as abortion. That's, that's a good example. Any others that you can think of? Another example of righteous anger that we should be angry at. Sure, sure. Sure, absolutely. And, and let's, say, let's even say we're sitting there watching television, watching the news, and, you know, um, Catherine and I were, a good example, Catherine and I were watching the other night, they, they're working on a coal case, I can't remember the, the town it's in, uh, I, I can't remember, I think an eight-year-old girl, something like that, she, uh, she was at school, and um, she called her mother, it's been, it's been a few years ago, called her mother, and, and wanted her to pick her up, and her mom said, you, you need to walk, Ugh, I bet her mom regrets that to the, you know, and um, they've not seen the little girl since. Well, well, they, they, they found her strangled, I should say. They, and so when you, when you watch something like that, you should get angry. You should get angry at such evil, wicked people in this world that would do such things, especially to children. And so you know, th- these are just some examples of, of righteousness. We don't sit there and go, oh, well, you know, oh, well. No, we, anger rises up within us. So... Here, Jesus is speaking of um, unrighteous anger, okay? In verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry uh, with his brother, again, without a cause, okay? Uh, That would be unrighteous anger. Again, that's why the phrase would be 
perhaps placed in there. Uh, he says, anger with his brother without, without, without cause will be liable to judgment. Then whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So we've got, we've got anger, insults, and calling someone a fool. Now, clearly Jesus doesn't mean that it makes no difference whether we insult someone or stab them, okay? I think we, we know there's, there's a difference there, okay? But he does mean that both activities reveal the same animosity of heart to our neighbors. Uh, the word insult, do you, you see where it says whoever insults, and it is, it is the, uh, the word raka. It's an, a, an Aramaic word, which is to call someone empty-headed. You know, it, it, and it's not, listen, it's not just the words, okay? It's the heart behind the words, okay? But the, the insult here in particular is, is, is the Aramaic word raka, which is to call someone empty-headed. In the, again, in the attitude of demoting someone to the level of a nobody. Like, you're nothing to me. You are nothing to me. You, you're not even alive. I don't, you're dead to me, that kind of thing, you know. Uh, then, uh, whoever, whoever says you, you fool. Now, immediately, you probably think, well, wait a minute, aren't there times when a, when a, when a person is a fool? <laughs> uh, and, and, and Jesus said so himself. Uh, the scripture teaches us to recognize that. And for example, in the book of Proverbs, when you begin the first couple of chapters, you'll see different kinds of fools. You'll see the simple-minded fool. You'll see the arrogant fool, and on, on and on. So you might say, well, wait a minute. Jesus seems to be against anybody calling anybody a fool, but there are places in the scripture where people are, are identified as fools. What's going on here? Well, these references have to do with stubborn rebellion against God, not the deliberate belittling of someone as a person, which is what Jesus is referring to here. Okay? It, it, it's, it's, you know, who, who, you know what in the book of Psalms, the, the, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's a person in outright rebellion against God. That's different. That's different than us calling someone a fool and, and, and in a way to belittle them to demote them down to nothing. All such animosity, all these, you know, this, again, th that comes from the heart, this belittling, demoting people, all such animosity can land a person in hell. That's what Jesus is saying. So we must not think, we must not think that we are safe just because we haven't shed someone's blood, Okay? That's the point Jesus is making here. Sinclair Ferguson, I know I have this in your notes. I love this quote. He says, we treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. That is why Jesus invades our moral slumber by telling us how serious this is in the sight of God. I wanted to put that in your notes because that, I mean, that, when I read that, that, you know, it's like, boom, it just clobbered me, you know, because that is so vivid. You know, when we, when we treat people in, in this murderous way with our words, we don't, we don't see the corpses. If we, you know, if we shot somebody, stabbed somebody, we, we see a corpse, you know, 
but we, we don't see that when we use words. Simply put, belittling, being dismissive, condescension, disdain, contempt, all of these attitudes, what Jesus is saying, all of these attitudes are the seedbed for murder. The seedbed. They may never, now look, they may never lead to the physical act of murder, yet they are tantamount to murder in God's sight. That's the important thing here. These acts may never lead to a physical act of murder. They might. They have certainly for some. Began, you know, with this anger that just kept raging and raging and raging until it finally worked itself out in the physical act of murder. But it doesn't always happen that way. Yet, they are tantamount to murder in God's sight. So, what are we to do? Let's look at this quickly before we run out of time. What are we to do? How do we, how do we live this out? Well, look at verses 23 through 24. So, and Jesus gives some helpful examples here. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Let me read you what Kent Hughes, some, some just kind of, some, I guess, imagery that will help us here. The worshiper has entered the great temple of Herod with his sacrifice and has passed through the, the uh, concentric courts, the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, and the court of men. Beyond him lies the court of the priest into which only priests can pass. The worshiper is standing at the threshold of the court. His hands are on the sacrifice. Now, can't you just see this, okay? He's entered the court, hands are on the sacrifice, and suddenly he remembers that he's wronged his brother. So he turns and retreats through the great courts. He must first make things right with his brother. Jesus' point is clear. It is far more important to be reconciled to your brother than to fulfill the external duties of worship. Worship is merely a pretense if we have offended others in such a way that they are holding grudges against us. Do you see the picture? I mean, person comes, they're ready to do their, you know, offer their worship, and then, boom, this becomes real to them, lands on them. Now, can, let me ask you, can you think of reasons a person may choose not to do this? What might there be some reasons for a person to just press on through, just go right on through? kind of lands on them, but they don't, they don't. They decide, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go to my brother. I'm not going to go to my sister. Can you think of any reasons why a person might just not do this? Pride? Yeah, there you go. That'd probably be one of the biggies right there, right top of the list. Pride. Can you think of any other reasons why a person might? I mean, let me ask you this. Do you think Jesus is serious about this? It's okay to say yes. <laughs> Because he is. You see, it's so natural. It's so natural of us. That's why Jesus gives this illustration. It's so natural to try and make up for our integrity with ceremony. I'll just, I'll just do more. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll, just do, I'll just do more for the Lord Jesus. And, and I, won't, I, won't, I won't deal with this over here. I won't deal with 
this relationship over here. I'll just, I'll just add more, more ceremony, more stuff, you see. Uh, here, here's what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this verse. It's great. I think I can say again that we all know something about this tendency not to face directly the conviction with the ho- which the Holy Spirit produces in our heart, but rather to say to ourselves, well now, I'm doing this and that. I'm making great sacrifices at this point, and I'm being helpful in that matter. I'm busily engaged in that piece of Christian work. The whole time we are not facing the jealousy we may feel against another Christian worker or something in our personal and private life. We are balancing one thing with another, thinking this good will make up for that evil. And, you know, when he reads that, I think, you know, I've, I've thought those thoughts in my own head because that's just natural to us. Ceremony, regular worship attendance, giving will never produce a clear conscience. When the Holy Spirit deals with us about these matters and we keep trying to push it aside and maybe give more, do more, that sort of thing, will never produce the sweetness of a clear conscience. Now let's not make a mistake here. Jesus is not saying that the only important thing in worship is right relationships with our fellow man. That's not the only thing, but we 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 but we always appear before God as those who are related either rightly or wrongly to our fellow man. Now that that is important to think about. We we always appear before God as those who are we're either rightly related to our fellow man or we're wrongly related. So here's what we're seeing. Right relationships with others are part of the meaning of the commandment not to murder. See? We might just say, well, I've never killed anybody. But Jesus is, is, is again, internal internal, our heart. Right relationships are essential if our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Dot? Yes, yes, exactly. If we, if, we, if we want to be forgiven, we have to forgive others. Exactly. And, and again, what, what, is, what is Jesus saying? What did, what did he say back in verse 20? Your righteousness has got to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees or we don't get in. So he, he kindly gives us some examples and says, okay, you know, since, since exceeding righteousness is internal as well as external, it should begin internally, uh, right relationships with others are essential if our righteousness is going to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now let's quickly look at verses 25 and 26. Uh, and I say quickly because that's what's going on here. Come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with the court. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? This, this is an illustration that Jesus is giving, okay? And what it's doing is it's underlying the necessity of quickly being reconciled. Uh, the, the first, see, the first one in verse, verses 24, uh, I should say verses 23 
and, and, and 24. Um, let me get this right. Verses, verses 25. Yeah, verses 25. Um, the first one underlies the necessity of reconciliation. The second one underlies the urgency of reconciliation. And, and the reason is, is because animosity is kind of like a time bomb. If we don't uh, do something, we, you know, we, we never know when it's going to go off, you see. And if we just keep lingering and lingering and lingering and don't deal with it quickly, it can go off and things can get far, far worse. And Jesus is making that very clear. Uh, so let me ask you a question before we run out of time. What are some of the disadvantages of delaying? Reconciliation. What are some of the disadvantages to that? You think of any? Yes, Gary. Fester is a good word. Yeah. Sure. Fester. Dot said bitterness. Bitterness can begin to take root. So yeah, uh, that, that's what Jesus is making clear. You know, quickly. Be first the necessity of reconciliation. First thing is. Get this thing done and do it quickly. So, Because there are disadvantages here, and Jesus makes that clear as well in these illustrations. So according to Jesus, when is the right time for us to attempt to be reconciled to another? When is, when is the right time? And the answer to that is soon as we are conscious that we are at enmity with them. Jesus said, you know, you're getting ready to offer your gift. And, and, and what did he say? You're getting ready. And, and, and you remember, you remember, you remember. When is the appropriate time? And, and, and before we close with this, we've got to remember. We, we are to be at peace with others as far as it is possible with us. We have to put that in there as well because we might, you know, we get down to this part of it and we think, oh, my goodness, I, you know, I've, I've, got to get, I've got to get this worked out. I've got to get this worked out. And you, you may be sitting here thinking, look, I tried and I did my best and as far as it was possible for me. Okay. Now, before we finish, okay, uh, be reconciled to someone. This is just a, you know, this is just a, a tip, <laughs> you know, because we think Jesus says here, you know, go be reconciled to your brother, or your sister. You might think, well, I just feel like that I should tell them all the bad things I've thought about them. No, <laughs> you don't have to do that. You you don't have to purge yourself to them. Okay, be reconciled to them. You don't, have to, you don't have to sit there and go, well, let me just tell you what I really. <laughs> See, Jesus is not urging us here to share every thought in our hearts during the process of reconciliation. We should use discretion. We should use discretion in how we go about doing this. You may say, well, I, I, I won't feel like I'm being genuine unless I just tell them how. You know, well, that may not work so well, okay? You, why? Because we want to be reconciled. Don't want to. Don't, don't want to cut deeper, you know. Don't want to gouge deeper, okay. But, but by all means, Jesus is saying here. Again, remember, we, we could all go out here and say, I haven't murdered anybody. But we see that for our righteousness to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees goes much deeper than the physical act of murder. 
Really, uh, really glad to see you here tonight. And I guess what's most encouraging is to know that you want to be. And so let's pray before we go. Heavenly Father, you have used the words of our Savior to really nail us tonight. So go back over this now, this evening, with these dearly beloved people. Um, just again, strikes me again. I guess that's why it's really important, perhaps, that we need to we need to read your word more regularly, so that we 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 don't get away from these things so easy in this kind of environment to to get caught up in the world's way of thinking and doing things and just lose track of what. Jesus is saying to his followers, teaching us how to live counterculturally. And so, Lord, first we just want to ask, please forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us of being so careless with our words. And Holy Spirit, would you seal this to our hearts big time tonight uh, so that when we go tonight, when we go tomorrow, that we'll be more careful how we live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody.